Thomas Schreiner, one of the foremost New Testament scholars here in the 21st century, uh, wrote this of our passage that we will be looking at this morning. 1 Corinthians 12, 2 through 16 has some features that make it one of the most difficult and controversial passages in the Bible. We're in a series in 1 Corinthians, and as you know, if you've been a part of East White Oak very long, when we do a series in a a book of the Bible, we go verse by verse through the entire book, and uh, 1 Corinthians is no exception. Now, last week I was out of town, and if we were doing this in proper order, Pastor Justin would have had the privilege of teaching this difficult text, but I decided not to give him that burden but rather to lay all of the slings and arrows upon myself as we look at this very difficult passage of Scripture. Um, As we approach this, there are many words in this text, 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16, that are debated. Words like head, so we're going to deal with that. Even the word translated wife or woman in our passage is debated. Does it mean wife everywhere? Does it mean woman everywhere in the text? Or do we do as the English Standard Version, which I'll be reading from this morning, uh, do, do you mix it up? Some places it means wife, some places it means woman. Uh, we'll be looking at some of the challenges associated with that this morning as well. And in fact, what I am going to do as I read this passage is actually change the text uh, that we're reading to a more generic translation to say woman everywhere uh, because that's the more generic word for it, and I'll explain my justification for it as we make our way through the passage. Um, With that in mind, let's stand for the reading of Scripture as we think about this radical New Testament view of authority. Paul begins this chapter by saying, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ The head of woman is the man, and the head of Christ is literally the God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a woman will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short, But since it is disgraceful for a woman to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. 
Judge for yourselves. Is it proper, proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering? If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Please have a seat. Anybody want to take my place up here? (laughs) All of us are under authority. All of us are under authority. We are under the authority as believers in Jesus. Under Jesus Christ, our captain, we seek to imitate him in all that we do. That's why verse 1 says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, Paul says. Paul, even as an apostle, is under authority. We are under the authority of Jesus Christ, and we are under apostolic authority, the apostolic authority of the teaching of the New Testament. This Apostolic teaching is the basis for how the church functions. When Paul says, now I commend you because you remember me in everything. He's not saying, oh, thank you that you're remembering me, Paul of Tarsus. No, he's saying, I thank you that you're remembering me as an apostle of Jesus Christ, as an authority in the church to give you instruction in how the church ought to function. That's what the word traditions means there in verse 2. The functioning of the church, he's commending them for the ways in which they are functioning under the authority of Jesus and the the teaching of the Apostle Paul. You see, apostolic teaching is the basis for how the church functions. Don't let that just slip by your head. I know it's going to be easy for you to just kind of whoosh and drift off here, but apostolic teaching is the basis for how the church functions. We all at first glance go, yeah, 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 I get that, but we really don't. Let me tell you why. For many of us, the biggest basis for how we think the church functions or ought to function is the broader culture either the world at large, how it views men and women and how they relate to one another, what kinds of music we sing, what kinds of things we like and dislike. And then there's also ways in which people react to that and say, well, we're not going to be of the world. Instead, we'll make up some traditions And we just keep doing them. Why? Because we've always done them. We have no New Testament merit for it. And yet, we'll do it just because we have developed an authority unto ourselves. Apostolic teaching is the basis for how the church functions, not culture. Either a culture we develop or the culture at large. Personal preferences are not the basis for how the church functions. Sometimes people make decisions, for example, on whether or where they go to church, on 
what music they like or what kind of erudition of the teacher they like. The basis for worship in the New Testament church is not personal preferences. Did you know that the basis for how the church functions is not what the majority thinks? Oh, let's have a vote on that. And if we get 50.1% of people voting for, that's what we do. That is not the basis of how the church functions. It is not what some smart or persuasive person thinks. Those people exist. I myself am not one of them, but there are smart and persuasive people that you, that you follow after and they present a very good case and so people, well, that's how we'll do it based on what this smart or persuasive person thinks. And some of us worship and think about authority because of our prior experiences about authority. Some of you have had very, very bad experiences about authority abused by an authority figure. And that colors your thinking about what it means to worship under authority. Some of you have had very delightful and good experiences about authority and it makes you even perhaps too trusting of authority or will trust authorities that ought not to be authorities. Apostolic teaching is the basis of how the church ought to function. Don't just run slide by that too quickly. You are more a product of your culture than you realize. I I remember, for example, how much we are determined by our preferences. Uh, I've lived in the third world where if we go into a store, they go, you go, Yay, they have toothpaste. But if you go into a store and you go, you know what? They don't have the sensitive gum, tartar control, plaque reducing, teeth whitening in the, what? Orange and peppermint flavor. I'm out of here, right? You see how we have, by our own culture, have defined what kind of authority we're under by our preferences. The Corinthians here, in verse 2, are commended for their submission to Paul's authority as apostle. They remember him in everything they do, and they maintain the traditions, which just means the function of the church. They maintain the functioning of the church as Paul delivered them to the church at Corinth. He did that, first of all, in his 18 months of teaching there in Acts chapter 18. And then you remember in his prior letter to them, 1 Corinthians is not the first letter he wrote to them. There was a prior letter he had written. And then all along the way, there had been several envoys back and forth to him and Corinth. And so he commends them in verse 2 about this. Now this bit of praise in verse 2, introduces chapters 11 through 14, where we're going to be headed in this study of our letter. 
where after beginning with this compliment on their general following of his authority, Paul is now going to describe ways that they are deviating from his authority and what to do about that deviation. So we'll look here at men and women at worship in the first half of 1 Corinthians 11. And then last week we looked at the Lord's table where he says in the following instructions, I do not commend you the way they were fouling up the Lord's table. Chapter 12 will be ways in which they are not understanding the right apostolic submission to authority in the area of spiritual gifts. And then in chapter 14, how they are not following proper apostolic authority in the specific gift of tongues. Now, in verse 3, this word head appears quite a bit in this passage. The idea of head is a key concept of New Testament authority and submission to it. The word head indicates subordination of functions and not subordination of value or of personhood. When someone is submitting to a head, it does not mean they are of less value or less of a person. It is rather a submission of function. When we speak of subordination to a head, it is not describing an essential difference of being, but a functional difference of roles. So when it says that the head of Christ is God, it doesn't mean that Jesus Christ is less God than God the Father, but rather there is a subordination in the functioning of the roles within the Trinity. Now, there have been recently some objections to this idea of the use of the word head to describe authority, particularly more feminist writers want to say that the word head doesn't mean authority, rather it means source. And this is based on two examples in ancient literature, both of which happened about 400 years before the New Testament was written. But literally, every use of the word in the New Testament period, which is substantial, has the word used in some kind of authority context. So to kind of demonstrate that for you, I'm going to take you on a little bit of a journey through the New Testament where this word head is used and see if you don't see an idea of authority everywhere this word head appears. Ephesians 1.22, God the Father put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Colossians 1.18, Jesus, he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Colossians 2.10, you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Colossians 2.18 and 19, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body grows with a growth that comes from God. Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, even Christ. And then I'll leave you with one perhaps more controversial one, Ephesians 5.23, for as the husband is the head of the wife, 
even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to their husbands. This is true even when you look at the translation of the Old Testament into Greek. This word head appears several times, and in nearly every case, it means authority. So, Judges 11.11, the Jephthah went to the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. Psalm 18.43, you delivered me from strife with the people, you made me the head of the nations. Isaiah 7, 8, and 9, the head of Assyria is Damascus, the head of Damascus is Rezin, the head of Ephraim is Samaria, the head of Samaria, the son of Remaliah. And so, this word head, I'm just taking quite a bit of time because it's challenged by people who would want to reduce this idea of authority in this text. This word head has in every context in the New Testament period the idea of authority. Now, I want you to notice in verse 3 the three headships that Paul describes. First, the head of every man is Christ. Now, he's talking about people in the church, right? And the head of every man in the church is Christ. He, every man is under authority, the authority of Jesus Christ. There's no debate about the goodness of that, is there? Everybody would say, yes, all men should be under the authority of Christ. Then it says, and the ESV translates it, the head of a wife is her husband. The word her does not appear in the text. Um, and it could well be that, that Paul's describing the relationship of a wife to a husband, but I think that might be reading Ephesians 3 into the text, as I'll note in a moment, that the head of a woman is the man. Now, there's tons of debate about the goodness here. And I myself used to think that this was about a wife to a husband, but the appeal to the created order that we will see in verse 8 particularly, leads me to think that this is about men and women at worship in general and not just about wives expressing submission to their husbands. But recognize everybody goes the head of every man is Christ. We go, yep. And on this one, the head of a woman is the man. We go, nope, or maybe don't know what that means. And then we get the third one. The head of Christ is God. Now, there's even debate about the goodness of that, isn't there? Does Jesus submit to God the Father? And the answer is yes. He will do so in the future, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, or 15, 28. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. When Jesus came to earth... He was submissive to the Father's will, Philippians 2, 6, and 7, John 5, 19. Jesus said, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Son, Father does, the Son does likewise. So these three aspects of headship in verse 3 are important for us to understand. This headship impacts our worship in all respects. Chapters 11 through 14 
are all about how these headship relationships impact our worship. 11, 1 to 16, this headship idea reflects men and women and how they function together in worship, particularly as couples. 17 to 34, communion and how the body of Christ functions together in worship around the table is determined by our submission to authority. Chapter 12, spiritual gifts and how they function together in the worship of the Lord in the church are about this idea of this radical New Testament view of submission to authority. Chapter 14, the specific gift of tongues and how it functions in the worship of the Lord in the church. It derives back all the way to this chapter 11, verse 3. So, all of us are under authority. In our own culture where we are told over and over, you can be anything you want to be. You go chase it. You do it. You, you, you. This runs headlong smack into that. Verses 4 to 6, the public worship service is a place of submission. It is not a place to declare our rights or even our preferences. Verse 4 says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered. Literally, it's any man who prays or prophesies having down the head. It probably does mean head covered dishonors his head. Paul is saying that if a man prays or prophesies with his head covered, that he's dishonoring his head. Now, you might ask the question first, wait a minute, don't Jews pray, Jewish men pray with their heads covered? You know, they wear the yarmulke or kippah or they'll wear the, the shawl or some hat or other to demonstrate their submission to God. And the answer is yes, they do that now, but that started in the fourth century AD and was only universal among Orthodox Jews in the past couple hundred years. Paul would not have known that. That would have been completely foreign to Paul, the idea of Jewish men praying with their heads covered. Paul, it seems here, is reacting to a pagan practice at Corinth of covering the head in the worship of idols. We've just been through a section 8 through 10 on that, and Paul is reacting to the fact that at Corinth, people have observed the worship of the gods, the idols at the pagan temples, and the men are covering their heads as they pray, and so now they're taking that cultural thing and adopting it into the worship of the church, and Paul's reacting to that pagan practice that's being imitated in the church. He says, if you pray with your head covered, you're dishonoring your head. And by the way, the last, the last word head there in verse 4, <clears throat> I don't think he just means that if you pray or prophesy with your physical head covered, you are dishonoring your physical head. Who is the head of every man in verse 3? The head of every man is Christ. 
So if you pray or prophesy with your head covering, you're dishonoring your head, that is Jesus. Um, Verse 5 now addresses women at worship. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Um, It's a dishonor not to cover one's head because if you pray or prophesy with your head uncovered, you dishonor your head. Perhaps the idea is that you're dishonoring the one who is your head, your husband, if you take the wife view to it. Um, Note that women here are joining in the praying and prophesying, every woman who prays or prophesies. So, in the context of the church at worship, women are engaged in praying and prophesying, whether they were merely attendant to the prayer and prophesying or the ones who were uttering the prayers and prophesying is not stated here, but Paul expects that women are present and engaged in the worship. There will be more on that when we get to 1 Corinthians 14 where there are some warnings and instructions on women at worship. But this phrase, covering the head, if a woman will not cover her head. What is that? What's the covering that's being talked about here? Well, it's not a veil, much like the Middle Eastern women wear that covers the face and all over the head. That was unknown in the first century, and that was actually how I interpreted it many years ago. But I don't see that now because I just don't see it in the first century uh, in terms of the... um, archaeological and and evidential historical data. It's not a a doily or a little piece of cloth or a cap that we see sometimes today. Rather, it seems that it is a shawl that is placed over the head. And Paul is building a case here that at the church at Corinth, a woman should pray with her head covered in such a way. In verse 6, this covering is in addition to the hair on the woman's head. Paul argues if a woman or wife will not cover her head, she might as well cut her hair short. He's building a case for submission in worship. A woman should cover her head to express her submission. If she refuses, she's asserting herself to be a man and she might as well shave her head or cut it short to look like a man. And since gender confusion is a disgrace, let the woman cover her head. Now, some people have suggested that shaved or haircut very short heads for women were how the temple prostitutes in Corinth uh, wore their hair. There's no evidence for that either, even though I see it in commentaries, there's no evidence for it. Rather, what seems to be at work here is that at worship, there should be no gender confusion. That is that men ought not to try to be women and women ought not to try to be men, which, by the way, is not exactly lacking in contemporary application. In Paul's time, no covering for women implied an independence from men in worship. 
It implied a dishonor to women of drawing attention to themselves as though she had shaved her head. So the place of public worship is a place for all of us to express our submission, not a place to declare our rights or even our preferences. We come now to verses 7 through 15. Now how Paul is going to explain things is he's going to give the reason why. The order of creation is his reason. And he's not saying it's the result of the fall. He's saying the, thing, the reason things are this way is because of creation. That's an important thing because there are a lot of uh, feminist interpreters of Scripture who will say, yeah, when we were broken by sin at the fall, it messed up everything, including male-female relationships. But now in Christ, all of that is healed and there is no distinction between male and female. And they quote a text from Galatians chapter 3. There's no male or female anymore, no de- gender distinctions whatsoever. Um, <clears throat> what Paul's going to do is say it's not about the fall, it's about the order of creation that indicates there are fundamental differences between men and women and how they worship. Let's look at it. Verse 7, a man with an uncovered head shows his submission to his head, Christ. Why? Because man is the image and glory of God. This is an appeal to the created order of the man being made from dirt, okay? God made man, Adam, made him first and out of dirt, okay? Second half of verse 7, but woman is the glory of man. Woman has a covered head revealing that woman is the glory of man-related. Look at verse 8. Man was not made from woman. The origin of woman is man-related. Man was not made from woman, but woman from man. This is an appeal to creation here, the created order. Verse 9. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Go back to creation. And God made Eve out of Adam's rib in order to bring total fruition and completion to the created order, to bring about human flourishing and human beings. So, verse 10, this, that is why. The created order, that is why a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. So this covering communicated all of this to the church at Corinth in the first century. When a woman wore a covering, it was an indication of her acknowledgement of the created order. It was an announcement at worship, we understand God made us, and this is how He made us. 
He made male, and then, because God did not want the man to be alone, from the man He made the woman. Now, verse 10b gives another reason for this covering, because of the angels. Oh, man, the ink that's been spilled on that one. Like, what? what? Say that again, Paul. What is that? Because of the angels. He's made created order. Now he's saying because of the angels? What's that? Well, the idea may be that the holy angels observe our worship. For example, in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes in verse 12, it was revealed to them that these Old Testament guys, they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. That is, the angels are watching and they see the salvation of human beings and they go, what is going on? You know why? Because no fallen angel can ever get saved. No fallen angel can ever get saved. And instead of saying, wait a minute, God, that's unfair, you know what the elect angels do? They go, praise the Lord, we are under his authority. Amazing. Another verse that may impinge on this is 1 Timothy 5.21, where Paul's describing the order for elders and how they ought to be cared for in the church and how they ought to be accountable to the church. And Paul says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. He's appealing to God and to Jesus Christ And then his appeal also is to the holy angels who are observing the worship of the church and how they're functioning. And so, if we go back to 1 Corinthians 11, the reason why a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, Paul's saying, is the created order and the fact that there are angels that are observing the worship of Almighty God. Now, verses 11 and 12, this does not mean, and I know you're going there. You know, by the way, I can tell the conversations going on here. And whenever you, you know, it's always a little bit of an of a interesting thing when uh, you're, you're teaching something and people kind of stop at a spot where you've said something and they aren't, they aren't staying with you. They're thinking about that. And then they'll come in back here, you know, and you're like, well... It's an interesting thing, all the conversations that are going on. You with the Lord, you with the text, all of that. It's it's a beautiful thing. But verses 11 and 12, hear me. All of this discussion so far does not mean that men are more worthy or are more important than women. That is not what Paul is driving at here. In the Lord... Verse 11, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. And this is a radical thing to our culture because our culture says all of us ought to be independent, free, individual moral agents, and we go around figuring out what it is our preferences, and we pick those, and that's the basis on which we worship God. And Paul is saying, 
a radical New Testament teaching that none of us are independent from one another. Men are not independent from women, nor are women independent from men. Rather, there has to be reverence for the created order. Look at verse 12. For as woman was made from man, that's a reverence for the created order, but we also have to have a reverence for the continuing created order. For as man was, woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. Every man after Adam came from a mommy. <laughs> right? Every one of them. So the argument he is making here is that there has to be, yes, a reverence for the created order, but also a reverence for the continuing created order. And all of us, look at the end of verse 12, all of us are under God's origin. All things are from God. Notice how important it is to believe that the individual human being is made by God. Now, verses 11 through 15, the general order of cultural conventions suggests that trying to assert our individuality, particularly as gendered beings, does not make for the best worshipers. If we're trying to assert our individuality here, especially as gendered beings, that's not going to make for the best worshipers. Paul asks a rhetorical question in verse 13. Is it proper for a woman or a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Judge for yourselves. Just at this point, we're faced with the challenge of cultural convention, aren't we? Because there are some people who actually today, to the present day, believe that women should wear head coverings either as an act of respect to their husbands or as a reflection of the created order in the process of worship. And frankly, we ought to have respect for those who have at least respect for their desire to seek to obey Scripture, right? But we need to ask, do head coverings today convey that women are acknowledging the glory of man, her origin from man, her purpose for man. And generally, head coverings do not suggest that to anybody, even Christians. We don't look at a woman with a head covered and say, oh, well, that's obvious. She's submitted to the creative order in the act of public worship of Almighty God. That's not what we conclude. We can conclude, hmm, a head covering. She must come from a weird religious group. Or maybe not weird, maybe just different, right? I don't think that we reflect enough on the larger matters that Paul is addressing here. We get all wrapped up in long hair, short hair, head coverings, and we don't reflect on what it means for all of us to be under authority at worship, We don't reflect on the created order of men and women. In fact, our culture has all but erased that consideration from our minds these days. Now, 
Paul's going to address in verse 14, the idea of a man wearing long hair. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Why do men have long hair? I kind of wish I could, you know. In ancient Corinth, men had long hair in an attempt to bend gender, to look female. Today, this reason for long hair on men is not generally true, though for some it is. Men today can often have long hair for any number of reasons, but including to testify to their individuality, to draw attention to themselves, it's possible to use it to bend gender. Where there is this idea of expression of individuality and an assertion of it that gets in the way of the worship of Almighty God, and particularly if it's used as an effort to bend gender, the fully devoted follower of Jesus will reconsider their hairstyle. Likewise, the question needs to be asked, why do women have short hair? As stated earlier, some suggest that at Corinth it was the way of prostitutes, but there's no actual evidence for that. In ancient Corinth, it was an attempt to bend gender, to look male. Now, that today is not generally true, though for some it is. Women today can often have short hair or shaved heads to testify to their individuality or to draw attention to themselves and possibly to use it to bend gender. And where that's the case the fully devoted follower of Jesus will reconsider their hairstyle. Verse 16, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. We are not a community worshiping in isolation from others, so being contentious about these matters is not worth it. Here's what most people want to do with this text. Most people either want to ignore the text, right? So if you look, for example, at churches that preach more topically, you will never get a sermon on 1 Corinthians 11. You get a lot of sermons on male-female relationships, marriage, you know, parenting, six ways to improve your life or whatever. You won't get 1 Corinthians 11, right? That's not going to happen. Why? Well, You can see for yourself how great it is to go through a text like this, right? It's challenging. It's hard. It causes us to think about the wonder of God and His plan, and even to have some differences of opinion. We want to pretend that while the Bible is cultural, and therefore we could ignore all of this, we are above culture. We are not. My friends, brothers and sisters, remember you are swimming in a culture that is shaping your thinking in ways you are not even aware of. And so a text like this can awaken us to things that we wouldn't ordinarily see. So many people just want to ignore the text. But there's people on the other side that spend all their time on texts like this. And they want to find out, well, how long is long hair on a man? And how short is short hair on a woman? And what kind of a head covering? And you must do this and you must do that. And you must do the other thing, you know. 
I spent a week at a conference when I was in high school where that was everything that was taught at the conference, and it was deadening. Soul deadening. Nothing about the glory of Christ, the worship of Christ, the honor of His church. It was all about here's what you do and here's how you live and toe the line and be this way and you're a great man or woman of God. It's ridiculous. So, what do most people want to do with this text? Ignore it or find out what long and short is or if the men have long hair or women short, you know, all of that. Find out if we should wear head coverings or not. If so, what kind of head covering? You know, too many Christians want to be told what to do instead of thinking about why and how we worship. They worry about things like head coverings, how, when, hair length, how long, how short, instead of the bigger issue of being under authority at worship. Here's what I think the Apostle Paul would want us to do with this text. Consider how our culture has all but erased the differences between men and women. Men and women are both under authority in worship, and each gender would do well to carefully consider this text and to think about how do I express my submission to my head in worship. Men, Do you show your submission to Christ as you worship? Women, how do you show your submission to the created order as you worship? We should take care that the expression of our individuality does not get in the way of the white-hot worship of God in spirit and truth. We should worship with Jesus, worship Jesus with a full surrender to the truth that we are all under authority. Remember, all sorts of beings are watching you as you worship. There are believers that are watching. There are unbelievers that are watching. There are angels that are watching. And there is the Lord Jesus who is watching. That ought to affect how we live, even down to concerns about how we show our being under authority by how we dress and how we wear our hair and those kinds of things. But to try to make rules about that seems to miss the entire point of the text. It's pretty difficult to establish rules on such matters, given the variety of cultural norms and the fact that we are not living in ancient Corinth. But Paul would say that true worshipers do not flaunt their individuality and certainly do not attempt to confuse others about their sexuality and gender. But to hammer people over the head about hair length or some code about head coverings to me, misses the entire point of what Paul is getting at. Remember how we began our worship service with the story of the centurion who came to Jesus 
And as a Roman centurion, he had a lot of authority. I tell one man go and he goes, another one come and he comes. But his servant was sick and he said, I understand this whole thing of authority and I am under your authority, Lord Jesus. Don't come to my house. I'm a Gentile. Don't come to my house. Just say the word. I know your authority and you will heal my servant. Jesus marveled at that act of worship. And so, that is how we worship. Let's pray. Father in heaven, guide us as we seek to be worshipers maturing in Christ. Help us to recognize the audience that views us as we worship. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who's never put their faith in Jesus, that they would recognize that this radical ordering of authority is something they need to embrace. They need to first acknowledge, I am a sinner. I am a rebel against God and his authority. I have defied him. And yet I know that there's hope for me because Jesus died on the cross to forgive me of my sin. And I trust him now to forgive me and to give me eternal life. And I want to follow him as the Lord, the authority of my life, the head of my life. And now God, teach us all what it means to live under the authority of Christ and of the teaching of the apostles and of your order of creation. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.